name is Uncle Nichiwa, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric, and as always, whether this is your first time listening or you listen to every episode and watch all of our videos, I so appreciate your time so, so much for giving us the time of your day. And another thing that I appreciate is that I am not here by myself today. I am joined by a very special guest. I am joined by Jason Perez of the One Stop Co-op Shop and Shelf Stories, Shelf Help, and Good Trouble YouTube series, and also a cultural consultant, which, by the way, for any board game designers that are listening out there, cultural consultants are very important. You should definitely do them. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Yo, my hot peoples. What's up? We had a great time on the One Stop Co-op Shop talking about alpha gaming and everything. And so we, uh, I'm eager to hop back on your show and uh, get into it. Yeah, we had a, we had the double feature. We've been seeing a lot of each other today. So hopefully I did an okay job and I didn't embarrass myself too much over there. And I'm sure Jason's going to do a great job here today because today we have a really important subject and it's actually going to be part one of two. The next thing we're going to talk about at the Board Game Dojo is really representation. And if you are on YouTube, as you can see, I am a white dude from America, right? I'm a, I'm heterosexual, I'm cisgender, like I am never really one that um, has to worry about the way that I am represented in pop culture. And so we are going to spend the next two episodes talking about really important concepts in representation and how to get better at it in board gaming. And part one of our series today is going to be about Orientalism, which is something that Jason actually posted an angry video on the playground about when Gorito, when Gorinto uh, released... <laughs> Uh, it was like, I think it was like five minutes. That was actually one of the first videos I ever watched from you. Mm. So I'm really excited okay. that you're here. Wow. I, I remember that. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so I, my, the, my main channel is shelf stories and then within shelf stories, I do different uh, buckets. And so good trouble is my cultural comment. Uh, and I call it good trouble because it is trouble. Like it is not easy to point out when board games kind of go off in a wrong direction culturally. Uh, mm. and when, you know, so people, board gamer designers, publishers, they always come out with the best of intention. Uh, I, I try, and that's why it's called good trouble, right? So kind of assuming that people are, have good intentions and are trying to do the right thing. And, you know, and we, we step into cultural oopsies because that's what multiculturalism is. You know, we don't all think the same. We don't all, you know, uh, value the same things or see the same things when we, when something is, is in front of us. Uh, you know, one person's, oh, this is great. Uh, here's an honorific thing. Is another person's, what are you doing? That's, that's trash. Uh, so navigating those waters is what Good Trouble is all about. And it was a good entry point into what we're talking about. Um, Garinto was a game from Grand Gamers Guild. And the the game is okay. I mean, it's an abstract game. There's not really too much theme to it. Uh, but that was, that was part of the problem because it was an abstract game. So theoretically, it could quote unquote have any theme. Yeah, right? right. Or uh, no theme at all. <laughs> and so I think the original theme was based around like an Indonesia um, concept. And then the whatever reason, like the game got handed off to different publishers. And so the uh, the other person, the next person picked it up and was like, OK, uh, let's go with a more Japanese flavor and uh, uh, et cetera. And like just the idea stepping back of like, OK, I'm going to go to the 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 culture, the culture wheel. I'm going to spin the culture wheel and be like, OK, I want this and I want this and I want this. And OK, I mean not every culture wants to do that. And when you pick stuff out of the culture wheel, you might not like what you pick. So then just to go back in that particular thing, people don't know about it. So uh, the the controversy there was that the, the designer did a designer diary on BGG and talked about like the Indonesia piece when it was had an Indonesia theme. And 
what was their research? They went to Wikipedia for five minutes, looked at the most striking things, how like, you know, some native tribes file their teeth. And that was like a striking thing. And, and like, you know, silly things like that. And I did my video that basically said, okay, uh, you're making Indonesian culture look like circus freaks. Uh, and you know, and a lot of people kind of spoke up and everything. And I ended up talking, having another interview with the, the with the publisher of the um, finished game, uh, not wow. the Indonesia okay. version, but the yeah, that's what I do on shelf stories. I like talking to people, and we and we talk to talk to stuff out and everything. I don't know if the publisher was exactly <laughs> like I think they thought the blog was in poor taste, but I don't think they got like the deeper point about okay, here's what led to that mistake. Right? They just focus on the mistake and move on. So that's kind of what I do on shelf stories. I don't just want to like call people out for the mistakes. I want to kind of look at what happened and how we could prevent it. And that particular case was using culture as window dressing mm. and emphasizing the most striking, um, exotic, silly, wacky uh, things that would like titillate a Western audience and like putting mm. that in your game to get attention or whatever you're trying to get. And I think that that is a really important point that you're making right at the end of it is that a lot of this, some it's sometimes like just like haphazardly done. Like it's just like you could have done better here. But the point is to get better and to improve the gaming community as a whole. So we don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And today we're so today we are going to talk about Orientalism, which I am a bit embarrassed to say I had never heard of until Shut Up and Sit Down. Mm. Uh, they did a video on Istanbul and they talked mm -hmm. briefly about Orientalism. And that was the first time that I had ever heard of it. But so we can talk about it. So we actually know what we're delving into today. It is a mm -hmm. concept that was uh, developed by Edward Said. And it is kind of seen as one of the first uh, big concepts in post-colonial scholarship. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that Orientalism is a Western style for dominating, restructuring, and having authority over the "quote unquote" Orient. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's very, it's very us and them mentality here. It's a way of coming to terms with what we'll say is like the East or the Orient that is based on the Orient's special place in European Western culture and experience. And in the light of this perception, the Middle East, for example, is kind of static. It's unalterable. It can't really define itself. It has to be defined by the majority, right? Or the West, the Western majority, I should say. And therefore, through Orientalism, the West took it upon itself to represent the Orient and by doing so opened it to exploitation. Mm -hmm. And the very purpose of Orientalism is to take control of the Orient and take away from it any ability to speak for itself. So it's Saeed that kind of said like, okay, these stereotypes, these prejudices are what's determining the Western representation of the Orient. And in so being, it is also the knowledge that we might have of these cultures. Right. And so what I kind of want to start asking you, Jason, is kind of thinking about this. Um, well, do you still think that this definition is a good one for today or how has it really changed? Because I think when Saeed was originally do it and he's changed it throughout as well he was really right. focused on the Orientalism East. came out like the 70s and this we're talking yeah exactly with, with a lot of development here yeah do you still is there anything that you want to like add to that um mm -hmm. definition or maybe clarify as it would be to what you think of it as i mean you i think it? just right i mean so this is i'm a, I'm a little bit of a marxist <laughs> my sure, presentation uh so it's a, the, all these different theories kind of confluence. So I'm just kind of like putting it out there that like I have my own lens on this stuff. I think understanding Orientalism, it's a process of commodification. 
it is a process where you have a Western market full of people who want to buy stuff. And, you know, the stuff that the West produces is fine, but we want that excitement. You know, we want a different, I don't, I don't want sugar from, you know, my backyard. I want sugar from, you know, India. I want, I want these, like, it, it, there's a, there's a titillation factor for a Western audience when we find that things are kind of like foreign or from far away or whatever it is. And that's very deeply coded in a human experience. Like we just love new stuff. Right. Uh, and we like to feel like we're kind of part of a bigger world, especially when, I, when we're buying stuff. So then, Orientalism is the process by which the West, as it went out in its colonial project to the Middle East, to the Asia, to uh, the South Pacific and all these other places, Africa, um, it's the process by which Westerners have gone out and the particular aspect of like commodifying their cultural forms. So there's lots of different ways of conquesting people, but the specific to cultural forms and when we go to a area, or the Western, I should say, when the West goes to an area, what do they see? And uh, I, I read a great book about this uh, called, what was it, uh, Seven Cheap Things That Explain the World? And oh, how, okay. um, yeah, right? <laughs> I, I love that. That's interesting. So, they talked about like, uh, you know, uh, cheap food, cheap labor, cheap care, uh, cheap nature, cheap land, uh, how the Western instinct is to kind of cheapen things. And what that really means is commodify things, like bring it into our money exchange, right? Mm -hmm. So then how do I bring Egyptian culture into the buying and selling of the money exchange? What you do is you reduce Egyptian culture, African culture, even the, the sense of African culture, because there's many different cultures, but like, I'm going to turn that into Africa because that's more sellable, right? Uh, the dark continent is more sellable than like all hundreds of tribes that existed at the time. Uh, or, you know, Asia, these are constructions. <laughs> you know, China, Japan, and like the, even like just different aspects of China and like Mongolia and all kind of stuff. These are, so those are the cultures, but then how do I, how does the Western mind kind of take those cultural forms and, you know, use them in commodity? So then I take the most salient, uh, striking to a Western mind, the most exotic, and then I just kind of like, okay, that's the culture. That's it. So then what you said about the unchanging nature, that's exactly right. Uh, that like the, the thing to understand is like it denies culture's agency because it's focusing on those like striking things. I like to say like um, Orientalism is hungry for things that are exotic, inanimate, or dead. So Ooh. if it's Egypt, it's pyramids. Every Egypt, the board game thing, right? Every Egypt game has to have a pyramid in it. Why? You know, it's, that's like every New York game having a Statue of Liberty, which is not true. You know, like New Yorkers, we get to have different, <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, uh, we get to have different expressions. Like some games are natural liberty, some games are, uh, you know, whatever, the, the, different things, like, you know, at different eras and everything. Uh, and there's some tropes around it, but like there's more than one. If it's an Egypt game, it has to be a pyramid, just has to. Uh, if it is a, a Japanese game, I'm going to flip a coin. It's going to have samurais or geishas. Oh, I was just going to say, it's Samurai Zagesha for, for Japanese games, for sure. <laughs> Let's throw Pagoda on there. That, that novel said we've made it Japanese. So not that these uh, so not that these cultures don't have those things. So you'll get that, right? So people say, okay, well, they have pyramids and they have you know, all these other forms. It's not that they have them. The fact is the Orientalism is the process of reducing a culture to those things. Reducing them for the sake of commodity. Now, I've, it's when I've reduced the culture to a thing an exotic and inanimate or a dead thing. Now I can sell it. Now I can attach it to products that make my product more appealing to sell. You know, uh, my, my product is from Hawaii. Like I'm selling pineapple. So I'm going to go throw a palm tree on there. 
and that's and that's going to be the signifier that says, okay, this is exotic now. And so Orientalism, from my perspective, is the process of doing that, the process of reducing cultures to their striking things to a Western audience, inanimate, um, exotic or dead, and or dead, and, and slapping it on products or making it a product in of itself and putting it in the market of exchange for a Western audience. Uh, that was an amazing answer. Um, as as expected in Japanese, we say sasuga, oh. which is like like <laughs> as expected, right? That was good. Oh, um, thank you. I appreciate. It. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna so I think Orientalism is is a problem. But I'm gonna kind of play the role kind of in this interview of kind of asking some of these like more difficult questions that some people sure. might have in reaction to this. And I think the main one is okay. You said it yourself in your definition that by putting pyramids on an Egyptian game, by putting samurai or geisha on a Japanese game. Right, that game sells well. Mm-hmm. Okay, and don't countries w- want games about them to sell well? Like, why should I even care about Orientalism, especially in board gaming? Can't I just have fun, Jason? Like, I just <laughs> want to play as a geisha or a samurai in a game. What's the problem right. with that? Why? Why should? Why should we care about this? Right. Uh, okay. So, it's the problem isn't the thing; it's the reduction. Uh, the The problem is the. The idea that like, okay, let's say I am a person, <laughs> God forbid, I'm an actual person uh, that is representing this. I thought, that, that, am I interviewing a person? Yeah, right. Uh, oh, and man. they want to design a game or they want like, well, let's go straight to board gaming, right? Because uh, this sure. this is everywhere, right? You can like, you know, cultural forms, movies, uh, any contribution to culture this this applies to. And I, I, this is definitely a problem in movies too. Um, so you want to make a game from your authentic cultural experience and you know as a new yorker i've never been to the statue of liberty i could not tell you one thing about the statue of liberty besides like what i learned in a textbook if i write a new york story then i'm going to write something from my perspective which happens to be multicultural brooklyn uh you know uh, the blacks and browns etc it's not going to have the statue of liberty but then imagine you go to a publisher or you go to uh someone who wants to design games like okay um wait a minute this doesn't have any pyramid or just have a statue of liberty in it so i don't i don't think this is good come back with something that has a statue of liberty and i'll let you know and I'm like, I, 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 that's not my life. That's not, I, I don't know how to write that, but that's not in that paradigm. It's not, you know, they don't want to know my story. They want to know the quote unquote New York story. And it's always kind of funnels to that kind of Vegas style. Okay. Statue of Liberty and Rockets and all that kind of thing. Um, so I'm roped into telling that story if I want to sell my, if I want to, you know, participate in the market of exchange and, you know, like, like a full human being, which the closer you are to Western culture, the more you can do that. You can, there's, we accept lots of different paradigms for like the white guy. The white guy can be a doctor, a lawyer, a, uh, you know, all these different things. But if I'm from Egypt and, I, and if I'm not like a Bedouin uh, carrying a camel in a you know, sand swept dune, then that there's less tolerance for, uh, and less acceptance, less knowledge uh, and ultimately less opportunity and less access. So that's so really is a material aspect to this is less uh, having the cultural form be so dominant denies access to multiple voices. And we just get the same things over and over again. And so that answers your question of like, okay, there's nothing wrong. There's, these aren't bad stereotypes, right? This isn't like the savage or something, but reducing things to a stereotype has material impact people that people can't tell their stories and and as a culture we're worse for it because we think we know i think i know mexico because i eat taco bell i think i know uh 
Right. <laughs> Sorry, that was I, think, I, think I was I trying to be in, so professional. I'm just like, oh, couldn't hold it. I think I know Indian religion because I saw a statue of an elephant god once. And I, like, there's so many ways in which these cultures. I played them on six once. What's that? I played them on Civilization Six once. I know. I know all about <laughs> India. <laughs> and so there's nothing wrong with the things. It's just when we get into a mindset like that's the only thing and we're not open and we don't uh, give opportunities for folks who want to you know, express themselves more authentically, then, you know, that that's where the difficulty co- comes in. And I know I'm, I'm kind of like fast forwarding to your um, your second episode, but I just want to kind of give the counter distinction of like, OK, let's let's. Um, Please. So so uh, like the, the movie, everything, everything, all, everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. Was a triumph of representation. Why? Because it broke, it, it was authentically, you know, from their culture. There's a lot of things like talking to people from that culture. It's like, oh, wow, I resonate with that. But it came at it from such different angles. They put in sci-fi, they put in like all these different like perspectives. So like if they had just relied on the usual tropes of like martial arts and nunchucks and like that wouldn't, that movie wouldn't have been what it was but it was it, it it took what was familiar to a western audience made 2d into 3d and people really resonated with it so that's the difference right so an orientalist paradigm will give you the 2d version we want the 3d version and i think people are better off and more people have access when we we're more tolerant of the 3d stuff that's what i want sure and but on the on the flip side of it as well, as you talked about, I mean, you know, having the Statue of Liberty is a bit reductionist. It's what happens when we have unjust representations of a culture as well, because if we if we continue having these certain stereotypes that are seen again and again and again, people do start to think that they know everything about it. And so one of the I think one of the biggest ones is the Arab Islamic world. And like it's just been historically represented through unjust stereotypes, and this and this like continues even now in contemporary times, even after we've been talking about Orientalism since you said like since the seventies, it hasn't stopped. Like the Middle East is represented most of the time, and this has like been shown by studies that most of the time it is represented as an Islamic place bursting with villains and terrorists, and as a Mm. place of constant conflict and little attention is paid to their actual diversity, cultures, and achievements. The term Islamic terrorism is also prominently used, which reinforces the false belief that all Muslims are inherently violent. So it goes back to that, you know, okay, small, 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 small group of people, and everybody thinks it's representative of everyone. And part of that is just the way that we have kind of learned about these different knowledge points throughout history. And what is important is not only what is said, but because of Orientalism, what has not been said. And so we we think about the Renaissance as one of the greatest periods in history, right? Well, it was one of the greatest periods in Western history, sure. But how did they fund that? Well, they funded it a lot of the time through exploitation sometimes, through free labor. Well, free labor is exploitation, but mm-hmm. through trade with what they call the Orient, with the them, but we don't talk about it. And so everybody will says, okay, well, yeah, the Renaissance happened because of the West. Well, no, the -hmm. Renaissance could not have happened without what you have deemed as the them Mm -hmm. in this situation. And so it gets to the point of, yes, it also happens with with the unjust representations as well. 
Right. So I'll give you a great example. So I went to Disney and Disney's is about as Orioles as you get. Uh, it's just like the cultural, especially you go down the, the, the world of explorers. I did a whole video on that. And I felt kind of gross sometimes. <laughs> Disney <laughs> sucks to be woke, quote unquote, uh, like aware of this stuff. Anyway, so I went to Starship Earth, which is the, the ride inside the big golf ball. Right. And Epcot. Oh, that's what it's on Epcot now. What's that? That's that's what it is at Epcot now, huh? Right. So Starship I haven't gone Earth. since I was a kid. So <laughs> what it is, is a, it's a basically a ride through history as, as so you have these animatronic things. You're in a cart and you go through like different periods of history. Right. It starts with the prehistorics and whatever. So when they got to what you exactly what you're talking about in terms of like the, the Roman Empire transitioning to, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Christians and then kind of like, oh, OK. And then a bunch of like nothing happened. <laughs> and then, uh, we get to the, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation, the Enlightenment, et cetera. So then what they talked about was like, okay, they did mention the Arab world, but they talked about it as like, okay, um, Western knowledge was saved by the Arab world, almost like a, um, like on a flash drive, like a, a, like a, like they had a, a disc hmm. of like all the knowledge of the Western world. And then when the Western world was ready, we kind of took the disc back and, you know, we were, we continued our development. So basically saying like, okay, acknowledging the idea like the Arabs played a big role in what we did, but like a subsidiary role. They saved, they, they, they kept the seat warm by kind of, you know, keeping the knowledge. And then when we were ready for it, we kind of booted it back up. And I'm looking at, I look at my wife and my wife, she knows what I think. And she looked at me and went, oh my God, he's mad. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, there's two sides to every Orientalism. There's like, you know, naughty and nice. Basically, so the you mentioned the naughty version of like the Middle East, the terrorism, and you know Islam is inherently violent, all kind of stuff. But there's also like the nice version, which is like helpful, and you know we uh, willing traders, right? Uh, and kind of backwards and not able to forward their own knowledge. Like the that the best they can do is like save stuff for us, right? Um, and, and that's what the, the, the point where you said about the denies them agency because it's like, okay, no, there was plenty of innovation that happened. God forbid we talk about the innovation of the Arab world. We're only going to talk right. about the, the wealth and the, the knowledge that they saved, quote unquote. So um, speaking to that point of like, okay, how, how does an Arab, how do, how do Arabic cultures and Middle Eastern cultures look in reference to the West and the Orientalist paradigm? I know we're speaking in very, very broad terms, but that's what Orientalism does. It does speak in very broad terms. So we're speaking on those levels. We're not speaking about the cultures themselves. So just putting it out there. Anyway, so there was a game uh, by Queen Games uh, by the designer Stefan Feld called Marrakesh. Uh, Marrakesh ah. is a city in Morocco. And the dust up that happened was... Um, Stefan Feld had released a bunch of promos for his game and it was, it's actually four different games. There's Marrakesh, there's New York, there's like four different city games. And in the three different city games, Amsterdam, New York, and just some other city suits, business, successful, etc. When it was Marrakesh, it was, uh, Jalaba, Fez, um, carrying a camel holding a rope and like the rope was a, a, attached to a, a theoretically an off-screen camel. Peasant. Huh. Peasant. So you put those four promos together, businessman suit, businessman suit, businessman suit, peasant and a job. Peasant. Oof. Oof. That's Orientalism. Yeah. You know, and again, what's the big deal? Well, I mean, if you don't know, you don't know. And if you don't, if you're checked out and you don't care, you don't care, it won't affect you. But it reinforces a view 
that the Middle East doesn't change, that merchants in 5th century, whatever, whatever, are the same as merchants in 20th century, whatever, whatever. And that's Orientalism. And that's it. If someone were to want to tell a story of a business person or city building in their, like if you're, if you're Moroccan, if you're from the Middle East, you want to tell your own story in that way, which is, which it won't be like that. And it'll strike the Western view as strange because we're not used to that. We're used to seeing the, the sand swept Bedouin. Right. And it won't get as much attention. It won't get as much sales. So that's, that's that to me, that's the limitation to me. That's that kind of like, that does a boom right there. Like, Ooh, that's, that's a, uh, that sticks out. That's not great. Yeah. And it's, and I think the important part of the conversation that is continuing to develop, and it's something that Edward Said kind of was talking about as well, is that there was lots of good scholarship that happened before, um, orientalism like before his book orientalism is is the name of the book and the and the thought process it's another, now another one of the isms but it's like okay there were there was good scholarship that was done but the problem is part of the story that we're telling right it's the part that we it kind of goes back to antonio gromsky's hege, hegemony uh hegemony hegemony i think hegemony. here we go <laughs> uh idea that's like the dominant ideology reflects that of the ruling class and it kind of justifies the status quo as inevitable mm -hmm. and that the idea that orientalism is like we need to kind of it's it's critiquing the the ruling class thought what we think we know it's critiquing that and kind of changing it so that we can let different people tell their story it's not what i said earlier of like well we're the ones that are able to tell the story and by we, I mean like a Western people and specifically, like it's been a lot of people that look like me who have been trying to do this of, no, we let people from their own backgrounds tell their own stories. And this, we've kind of generalized it out of it. And so I kind of want to get it even more because we, we talk a lot about it in the Middle East is the most, the most prominent um, early studies in Orientalism, but it happens everywhere. And you talk about the niceness, the and I I would say it's a it can be a bit of a fetishization of right. fetishization yeah, I, of nice, certain right? cultures I mean, as well. Not nice. right. There's like right. the savage version and like the nice pliant compliant version, right? Of, of many right. cultures. And so one of the things that we as a podcast and a YouTube channel is we we really focused in on East Asia, and that is one of the uh, most I think lately has gotten in it to its own. Um, that the West has kind of done its own, even somewhat different way of orientalizing East Asia. And I know you had some thoughts on this of kind of your own experience of talking with people about this concept. Right. So every culture, again, I, I'd be really careful because I'm an American. I'm a Puerto Rican American. So I'm a little bit of a different background than like, just like, you know, American American. Uh, but for the most part, I have my own perspectives on stuff and I have been challenged and called out to say, okay, no, that's a Western paradigm. You, you know, I understand what you're saying, Jason. It sounds really great in your context. Like my context is Latin America, Puerto Rico, where the, the, um, the, the conquest is clear and the conquest is ongoing, right? So it's like, if we're commoditized, if we're stereotyped, then the stereotypes tend to be like very obviously super negative. And so that's fine. I, I'm out of that, my perspective. Um, when it comes to 
Middle East and then, you know, the Far East and then, you know, China, Asia, and then South, you know, South Asia. And there's so many different areas. The further you out you go, the less we're talking about direct conquest by the Western world and America, all kind of things. Um, so if a, if the West does the commodifying thing with a cultural piece, it's just not going to be the same as like commodifying a Latin American piece. And that, and I want to put that out there. Right. Uh, so we, if we, if um, the West commodifies La Isla del Encanto, Puerto Rico, I can point to specific harms that the tourism industry has done to Puerto Rico. That's a, that's very, very close. That becomes more difficult to say with the, with the example of samurais and geishas. Right. So, that's not the same. It doesn't act the same way. And we need to tease out why that it's, it might be a problem to kind of reduce Japanese culture to samurai engagements. Uh, so there is a train of thought that says that let's just, you know, take the, the Japanese uh, um, in particular. And I did, I, I talked about it with a game design. I'm not going to say this person's name, uh, but they kind of said, um, they gave this perspective that like in Japanese culture, it's not a big deal. You know, let the Westerners have their fun with their geishas and their, you know, their out their outfits and you know where the where the hats and where the the flowing robes and everything. Let them have fun. And uh, there was a, a a dust up that happened a couple a couple years ago. This I mean, there's always a dust up, right? In social media, always uh, a bunch of um, I think it was high, high school girls or college girls, um, very white, very blonde, uh, had put, put a post on Instagram where they were all dressed as geishas, like straight up, you know, the the, the makeup mm -hmm. and everything. And a bunch of lefty Twitter types, SJW, so to speak, that's cultural appropriation, blah, 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 uh, and very, being very critical. And then you had Japanese folks chime in, not all of Japan, because not all Japan can chime in, but enough right. of, enough people from that kind of going, what are you doing? That's not, that's, that's not, that's whatever. Uh, you know, let the, let people have their fun. We understand. And they don't, um, so that those people didn't code white people dressing up as geishas as like, okay, that's oppressive. You know, Americans, you need to calm down. Uh, so where, where the merit where like a quote unquote left, the American would say, okay, well that's Orientalism. You commodifying, you know, reducing uh, Japan to, you know, samurais and geishas. Um, you can have another perspective that says, oh, that you're celebrating. It's a cultural appreciation, not appropriation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then that, that gets to that debate of like appreciation and appropriation. Uh, so complexifying a little bit. Not everything we're saying on this podcast is universally applicable. So, I mean, is that what you were referring to? Kind of like that constructing that little thing and exploring that? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And Japan has been a little bit different in terms of the Orientalism uh, framework as well, because I think I think one of the biggest uh, differences has been how the West has adopted or um, accepted things from South Korea and things from Japan mm -hmm. as a very different thing, because. Um, Western observers, they tended to focus on Japan's perceived exotic features and aestheticized its traditional culture and kind of fetishized its people. And that's kind of this, what we see is now the traditional Orientalism of Japan. It's not this like negative thing. It's in this over fetishization. It's over sexualization mm. of, of certain degrees. And so you can see that in what you've been talking about a lot of like, okay, uh, samurai and geisha, but it's also that in and of itself is a different thing because those are on different sides that people think of with in Japan. It's always characterized either in terms of its like aesthetic or its elegant qualities or through the martial arts culture. So you have the people that are like, 
geisha and kimono, but then you have also zen and kamikaze. <laughs> right. Right. It's like the same thing, like boom, 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 boom. And it's kind of always framed, though, that Japan absorbed the West. Right. But instead of the process that the West has also accepted so much from Japan, mm-hmm. like I, I, we moved and we'll, we'll be in Paris for like this year. And the amount of manga shops and anime stores and figurine stores that are here mm-hmm. is incredible. You might go down a block and you'll see a whole row of nothing but Japanese themed shops. Mm-hmm. But nobody talks about that. They only talk about the fact that ah, Japan took Western qualities. No, not really. Or at least it's, it's a two-way street here. So the style of like Japonism is, is what it's called is like imitation of like the Japanese aesthetic, but just that Japan imitated and adopted and reinterpreted Western technologies and never that the West adopted anything from Japan. So I thought that was a different like kind of framework because it, it yeah. tends to be a lot. And I think it partly it's because um, for better or for worse, there are some of the most famous Orientalist examples that you'll actually find nowadays have Japanese themes to them. Uh, Madame Butterfly mm-hmm. is probably one of the most famous works, uh, probably of all time. That is like it's it's still popular in Japan. I, I've seen like uh, advertisements for it there. It's going to be here in France. It's in the U.S. Like it's it's everywhere. But it is very Orientalist mm-hmm. in the sense of you know how a white guy sees the events unfolding. Yeah, I mean, so you talk about culture exchange, which is exactly the point that in terms of, okay, why is it bad that white girls are getting on there and putting on their geisha kimonos and stuff? Uh, I mean, it's culture exchange, right? And so, like, it's not... Yeah, like it's I got married in a kimono. <laughs> there you go. My, um, my wife is Japanese. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so there's nothing. So the so the theory goes, there's nothing wrong with it. The, you know, the West has adopted anime. The West has adopted, you know, martial arts culture and all kind of stuff. And the exchange is wonderful, right? Um, the exchange would be wonderful. I, I'll say it that way. I like exchange. Exchange is wonderful. It would be wonderful if the world wasn't organized according to power. <laughs> and mm. if, you know, certain people, like like the, all this cultural exchange we do as humans, and we've done it for tens of thousands of years, different tribes come together, we borrow, and we, we, we develop that way. I love the fact that I have, you know, I grew up in a, a neighborhood with um, you know, Hispanic, Chinese, Polish. Like I, that, that that's my, my jam. I love di- seeing different forms. The issue is when, you know, we have the largest economy in the world by a lot. Uh, that's changing a little bit, but like historically over the 20th century, we're the largest economy in the world by a lot. So what our tastes tend to be the normative thing. So we're not going to accept all of Japanese exports. Japanese, Japanese a lot to export. We accept certain things that are striking to our eyes, which is the manga, which is, you know, martial arts culture, the ninjas. And it's like, okay, that could be fine. But what happens when in our Western culture, because Japan needs Western money, you know, it like needs tourism, needs to invite people in. So Japanese culture has had to remake itself to welcome those people and make it appealing to them. And that's where we get to a problem. That's what, that's what happens in Puerto Rico. We have to remake our island to like maximize tourism and maximize all this other stuff, which does that benefit regular people? Doubtful. I can go into all that. So as an example, I was reading about this. Um, there is a, a a village in in Japan, a certain village, uh, which was like the reported origin of the ninja. So it's this massive tourist 
destination <laughs> and like the, the village basically has nothing else going for it so it, if it didn't have that it, it basically wouldn't exist anymore but like it is the origin of you know the, the you know some of the first martial arts dojo so you have all these western tourists that are coming in and the the town is kind of struggling with how to deal with it and what it's doing to the culture etc you can go around the world like you know everest tourism is a big thing so a oh, lot yeah. of the a lot of, you know, Nepalese economy is built around feeding the tourists that are coming through and, you know, all the despoiling of the environment, the exploitation of the Sherpas. So when cultures kind of have to orient themselves around Western tastes, that's where you start to get into the difficult stuff. That's where you started to get to material deprivation and, um, you know, local peoples not being able to tell their own stories and ultimately kind of, um, you know, participate in the marketplace in the way they would want to, the more authentic way. They're participating it to satisfy the Western gaze, to attract those dollars, to attract that tourism because we are the hegemon. America is the hegemon. The the white male gaze is the normative thing. So, you know, they're, they're, but the, there's some people that could be very cool with that. It's like, you know what? That's just the way it is. It's like, okay, you want to get you on a, you know, kimonos, go. You want, so I'm right. right, go. I, my perspective is what's being lost in that translation. You know, what aspects are, you know, cultures can change, but like are things being lost in each individual culture that like we would want? Uh, you know, personal perspectives and, you know, people that just don't have the ability to kind of tell, the, what I said before, tell their own stories. Well, I think we tell worse stories when we become, you know, kind of monocultural that way. Or at least ingest parts of culture that are the inanimate, exotic, or dead things and not, I don't know, family dynamics, <laughs> you know, or uh, innovation. You know, I'd love to kind of hear more of those stories uh, in my kind of multicultural media. So that's that's kind of the, the thirst. That I, and that's why I point out a movie like Everywhere, every Everything Everywhere All at Once. I can always mess that up. Uh, and there's there's plenty more. Just That one just kind of like is, is a really popular one. Sure. Uh, you know, different cultures kind of just, just blowing the doors off, giving a different perspective, innovating. As opposed to kind of like, okay, here's the 80,000th martial arts fuck or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I think that that is to a point something that I'm really tired of seeing in terms of like, I would love to, you know, when I see go on Kickstarter, I want to be able to back a game that is Japan themed. But a lot of them are just the same old themes over and over and over it just goes again. back to the medieval it's, period of like, you know, the samurais and, and whatever. Like, can we go, can we get more? <laughs> or, or, you know, they, there is like a bit of like some problematic things and, you know, I don't, I'm not super opinionated on the issue, but I remember um, the rising sun thing mm -hmm. when that one came out and that you got points for committing seppuku. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, you want to know why it's not selling well in Japan? Mm -hmm. uh, it's right. probably because of that is what I'm guessing, because that is like, I, I get that it's like a fan, like it's very fantasized like right. with like these giant demons and monsters and stuff. But still, it's like a bit distasteful, I would imagine, of certain degrees. But if I'm a publisher, what do you think that I can do to both... Um, keep out of the orientalist trappings but still make money and give people what <laughs> they want exactly right at the end of the day because as a cultural consultant i've, I've so, so before i answer that question I do, I do want to point that out right how can i that's the sixty-four thousand dollars question like okay how can i uh continue to exist as a company which requires sales and attention and you know check out of these orientalist themes so like i did i did a um cultural consulting project for a kickstarter and i won't obviously i won't say who 
Uh, and I, they, they prevent me with like, you know, all the tropes, right? It was a, like kind of the world tour type tropes. Here's the Egyptians, here's the Greeks and here's whatever, the, you know, ancient pantheons and stuff. And I said, okay, uh, here's the tropes I notice. Uh, here's some suggestions and whatever. And they came back with me like, well, we're trying to go with visually striking. Mm. But visually striking means sales and, you know, tropes are visually striking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, um, the 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 scantily clad come hither geisha is visually striking to a white male audience. Uh, yeah, it is. And so, like that's and so that became like we can have all these conversations all day, but it's like so you're asking the real question, like okay, how do we take what we're talking about and get it into that commodity sales attention economy? Okay, that's much sells. harder. Yes. Yeah. And you and you have all these. So it's like the publisher is like incentivized to kind of be there and want that everything. And the gamer is like, well, I'm just trying to have fun. It's more fun to have the come hither geisha. Keep your trans, uh, you know, six foot four weirdo Asian out of my game or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, they did. They, they just want to stay in the box. So like and they don't think they're doing anything wrong. Problem is, if you have a trans six foot four Japanese person who wants to tell their story, then that much more limited in their opportunities. Uh, that came up. I know we're hopping all a little bit, but that's like the nature of this culture conversation. Um, have you seen the movie Encanto? Uh, oh yeah, yes. From Disney, I know this is a whole. I, I, I had to mindset. think about it for a second. I'm like, yes. Right, right. Okay, we're, we're we're out of Japan right now. We're at the Columbia. Um, do you remember the character Luisa? Uh, no, remind me the, the big muscle girl oh. who can lift everything, lift yes. donkeys and everything. Yes. Um, the, the writers had to fight Disney tooth and nail for the, for Luisa to have that look. They Why? wanted Luisa to just be the dainty, pretty, whatever, just like basically a, a, a another version of Isabella because that's all the princesses and they just so happen to be strong. Huh. And and Disney was like, no, this is what people want. That's what people sell. And the authors went, the, or the, the writers went tooth and nail going, no, Louisa has to look different. And so Disney, you know, took a risk with different look. And it and turns out that was like the biggest selling doll when the first when the movie first came out was Louisa. Because it was different. It, it wasn't the same old thing. And, and that's the kind of thing we're talking about. We're talking about like, uh, how do we help publishers take that risk on something that looks different, feels different with a different voice, uh, with a more authentic voice that's a little bit broader. I'm not taking anything away from the center. I'm not taking any, well, I'm not like saying it's bad, right? I don't want to just replace. Uh, that's what. Uh, that's also the, the, the big thing. It's like, okay, if I criticize something and I say, okay, well, well, let's let's try something else. I think people take it as, well, are you trying to replace what I like? Are mm-hmm. you trying to replace me? And we kicked up that loss of urgent we talked about in the other episode. Uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead, clip in that. Uh, the yeah, nice, nice, <laughs> nice cross marketing there. That was very people, good. People don't want to lose stuff, so like you get that resistance from the consumer end because if we criticize like the thing they like, then it's like, oh, well, you're trying to call me racist, sexist, homophobic because I like this thing, and I'm like, no, it, it, it's just. It's not about the thing itself. It's about the everywhereness of the thing. It's the same thing over and over again. If I see a Japanese woman, especially in video games, but board games sometimes too, it's going to be a geisha. And don't you have enough? Can we get more different uh, aspects to it and everything? And you will find people in every culture, not just Japanese culture, like, okay, no, it's not a big deal. Who cares? It's just games. If you're, I mean, cultural stories are important. 
you know, the, the way a culture tells its story is important. If a culture tells a story like, like we're agents and we can innovate and we have a history and all kind of stuff, that's much more empowering than our culture exists as a function of another culture. You know, the only thing that we can make is a thing that's pleasing to our people that buy our stuff. That's much more denigrating of a culture. And I, I just, and you know, coming from a, a country that for whom that's true, Puerto Rico, and we struggle with trying to tell our own authentic stories, then, you know, that's, that's why I kind of like resonate with it, even if there's pushback, you know, on, on in different areas. Anyway, um, so your question was, how do we help publishers make the choice of doing the thing that's less familiar, but could add more perspective? That's my whole story. <laughs> Podcasts like this and conversations like this and good trouble, everybody. Shelf stories, good trouble. Uh, have it, and letting people know that like, and like honoring the fact that it is a risk. It is a risk. I mean, it is, and, and also like letting them know like, no, you're not bad for wanting to come hither geisha. That's what you know. It's what you know. So like, I understand why that's a, a, a default and a, you're not bad for wanting it. It's just, you know, can we get can we get into the perspective? Give it a try. You never know. And it might be like the Louisa doll that just like sold that like hotcakes. Could because it touches a desire for people who, even though many of us want the same things, we do want something different every once in a while. So you might hit that tuning fork if you just kind of keep at it, being like, wow, that's different. That's cool. I want to know more about that. So it, it does take a little bit of a risk on the publisher perspective. So I, I try to be good about communicating, right? That, that you know, whatever you know, and like making sure this isn't about loss. This isn't about like, okay, we want to replace uh, white guys out. You're fired. You know, <laughs> I've been called an anti-white racist. <laughs> well, that's news to me as as a white person. As a white guy. I, I, yeah, we've had a good time. We have a good time together. I'm funny white guys in my channel. I'm, it's, I'm in board gaming. It's, it's not about white guys. I can't. Oh my gosh, there's guys. white guys in board gaming. What? <laughs> but, but I haven't called that an anti-white racist because I because yeah. I, I have such criticisms of what's in the center. I was like, it's not about like it's. I'm not criticizing you. I'm criticizing the everywhereness. You know, I'm not like if it's a bus person and their legs are spread over three seats, and I'm like, okay, please close your legs. And that's not criticizing the person. It's like just asking, please close your legs, make room for more. Yeah, right. So that that's what that's all about. And I think that's really important of just of making sure that people do do realize that we're just we are just trying to have a conversation about something um you know orientally orientalist or anything like that we're not we're not shouting out anything in particular we're just trying to get it to that be better and i think there is another part of that that comes into the content creator part of it as well and because content creators whether um mean to or not do have a big part in sure. orientalism too well, of we, how they had... receive a game Oh, we've had like controversies among content creators. Like we had one, I forget exactly what the game was. It was a, it was a, it was an Asian themed game by a European designer and the, and the, um, the creator dressed up in like traditional Chinese garb with the big hat. What's the big hat called? And I, I forget what that is. Uh, Chinese. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, they, they came on, they had like the, you know, Ching Chow Cha and they had the accent and they, Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I don't know, dude. That's very good. And all that stuff. And they're doing that in the middle of their content. And and like that was like oh, fun. This is a live genuine reaction, folks. This is not my Oscar <laughs> submission. This is <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and so like participating in those reductive tropes. 
and, 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 you know, and, and using it as a goof, using it for attention and make people happy and make people, ha- and, and make people laugh. And, you know, okay, fine. It's not bad to laugh. It's not bad to be happy, but like using a, using cultural forms for that, we're, we, there's a line between laughing with somebody and laughing at somebody. And I think that crossed the line to be laughing at somebody. Oh, definitely. And there's the other form of it too, which is if we are going to want these different themes and want these different stories to be told, it is accepting it as different, but also, as you said, not mocking it for different things. And I think that this is one of one of my biggest pet peeves when I hear people talk about Japanese games is there's this kind of uh, Western Wagoner uh introduced this concept of what, what is called uh, wacky orientalism, mm-hmm. which is this idea that um, we can do kind of orientalist things by kind of making it inferior by saying that that is wacky. It is too weird. Like, look at these weird people doing these weird things. And I feel as though, and then maybe it's just because like I'm more sensitive because I'm trying to cover Japanese games a lot and kind of try to build up their reputation sure. a little bit as like, cause there's literally so many games. There's more games than I think people that play board games in Japan. Um, games, yeah. But so many of these games get taken by Western audiences as just these wacky, ridiculous themes of why would they ever make a game like that? Mm-hmm. So one of them is this really ultra rare game. That's going to be up on the channel in a couple of weeks that we did a review for called Pacunia. Mm. And Pacunia, in Pacunia, you run a cult. And when this game came out, it actually was really popular with Western audiences because they just wanted to show off this weird thing. And they never stopped to ask, why is there a game about a cult? And it's because cults are pre- like are super common in Japan. So it's kind of a, almost like, this is what is going on kind of thing. Um, you know the game Dandelions by Allplay. That was a uh, originally, it was a Japanese game called Earth, the dice mm-hmm. game, and it's about being birth. It's about like the birth of Earth, kind of. I think Earth the dice or birth. No, I think it's Birth the dice game or something like that. Okay. Was originally, but then it got rethemed or whatever. Um, there is a game called Smoke EQ. That is all about smoking. It comes in what it looks like a tobacco case, and same thing. It kind of is like, why is there a game about this? Like this is just so weird. Like look at the Japanese people making these weird cigarette <laughs> games, and it's like. No, it's because smoking is such a problem in Japan. It's just like this game is like literally you're supposed to like harm other people by smoking. And it's like, Mm. oh, smoking is really harmful. Look how easy it is to do this. And so it's like people kind of in their own ways telling these different stories of problems in society and things that are happening that people just go, oh, that's just a weird Japanese thing. Oh, my goodness. Like, no, Mm. you're you're making that game. Less. um, Less impactful, you're giving Mm. it less strength than what they're trying to say. It's like, yes, I'm. Yes, every once in a while there is just a wacky to be wacky, but for the most part, there is a reason that people theme their games in certain things. Theme is extremely important in Japanese games. It's what sells. Mm-hmm. And it is oftentimes the games that look and talk about something that's going on. Right. You know, like uh like martial arts movies, you know, back it's like like Bruce Lee, you read the Bruce Lee story. Like that dude was, you know, immigrant and you know, wanted to really open up the world of martial arts to a western audience and like the whole world there's a whole like spiritual discipline and physical discipline and you know uh the self-empowerment there's all these things that you know um the, uh, big projects and but the thing is when you look at those movies just through the lens of like okay he kicks people a lot 
then you you end up kind of like down the train, you know, thinking like, okay, that's all that is. It's a very, it, it becomes like a reductive thing. And that's natural. Human beings do that a lot. The reason, again, going back to the whole, like, Oriental doesn't make sense outside of like the Western hegemon. This would be fine. It would be fine to interpret, reinterpret, whatever. We humans do that. If someone makes a smoking game and it's like an anti-smoking message, and then five, you know, the, the, the game of telephone had then and someone turns it into like, okay, the fun smoking game. I mean, okay, that's fine. But the because of the way the hegemon kind of because of the, the the flow of money and the flow of attention and the flow of these limited resources is towards the Western gaze, the the interpretations tend to go certain ways repeatedly. Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. that that intelligent japanese game is going to more often than not get turned into the wacky doodle whatever and that's just been a consistent thing it's like the currents of you know cultural you know appropriation and all that kind of stuff that's the problem the problem isn't just like the one-off someone misinterpreted a game problem is the misinterpretations tend to be directional and consistent and we end up in places where the original makers, the original cultural producers lose out yeah, because they're trying to sell their stuff. They're trying to express their art, their culture, their whatever in their form, using their language with their ideas. And it gets roped into these kind of mass markety or, you know, Western thinking, whatever. And I shouldn't even say mass market. Like there's a lot of like very thoughtful Western critique that goes into cultural media, but because we have dominant tastes, we end up filtering even the, the the knowledgeable people end up kind of missing things when it comes to people from different places, you know, expressing different things. So I, I, this is a very difficult conversation. I, you know, it's hard to come up with like pithy kind of things because I'm an educator at the end of the day. I want people to come away with stuff. At the end of the day, it's like, okay, we live in a world where everyone has a voice. Everyone has a voice and everyone should create. And whose voices get amplified? Who can make money and a living? Uh, off of, you know, expressing of their authentic voice and who has to talk a certain way, have a certain accent, present a certain way in order to get that attention and those sales and everything. And the further away you get from the center, the more difficult that becomes. And that is, uh, I think, one of the, a great way to kind of end it because next week we are going to be talking about why it matters of how you allow people to use their voices because People are watching and people are learning and people are learning about uh, what they can and can't do in life based on what they see on the screen, what they play on the table and what they read about in books. So, Jason, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Is there anything that you're working on, any plugs that you want to do before we get out of here? I know I've kept you for a couple of hours by talking with you. I love it. Now, this is great. Uh, this is a very, been very invigorating, the very different conversations that I usually have. And I mean, I love gaming and everything, but people know me. I have a hunger to kind of get deeper and broader and everything. So you're feeding that right now. Thank you so much. And I hope this isn't the only collaboration. Like, obviously, we should kind of keep this going every once in a while, just kind of drop it on each other channels and, you know, do some psychological takes on things and history takes and everything. So uh, hopefully this isn't the last one. Um, and until then, uh, you can see me on uh, Shelf Stories. I'm not doing too much with Shelf Stories nowadays. I just finished a, a piece on content creation, which is a, kind of my last big thing for now, um, at least on the on the cultural end and the Shelf Stories channel. I'm still on the one-stop co-op shop. I love playing games. <laughs> That's not my game for like just pure fun, right? And the pure fun just keeps on coming. Games get released all the time. Um, solo, cooperative. I do playthroughs and reviews and et cetera. Um, and I can share with people that I'm designing a game. Uh, I'm designing Ooh. a um, 
I'm contracted with a, co- a publisher called the Tessa Collective to design the People's History of the United States. Uh, there's a book by Howard. Like Zinn. a book? I was going to yeah. say, yeah. Yeah, I have the license and I'm signing everything and we're there's a there's a basic prototype going. So uh, we're going to try to make a giant 500 page history textbook into a card game. Good luck to us. So, <laughs> well, that sounds amazing. And I will link yeah. to everybody out there, whether you're listening to this on the podcast or on YouTube, I will put it in the show and episode notes of where you can find the channel and where you can find the content creation uh, series that Jason just mentioned. And it's not because we're mentioned in episode one. It has absolutely no connection to that at all. No. Um, <laughs> it's, just a great, it's just a great series. Absolutely. And good luck with the board game design. And I as well hope that this is not the last time that we collaborate because I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts and I think it's very insightful. And it's always good, not only just looking at what the situation is, but how we can improve upon it for everybody's benefits. This was great. So, thank you so much for having me. So thank you so much, everybody. As always, arigatou gozaimasu. Until next time, jane. 